Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And with us today is Dr. Anthony Cavo, here to talk about his new book, Love Immortal. Hello, Anthony. Hi. Hello, Ken. Hello, Dee. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. We're delighted to have you. Very happy to be here. Now, just to start us off, I would love to know, what drew you into the world of antiques? I was influenced uh, by my mom. She was a nurse, and she began collecting antiques very early in the 60s. You know, I would tag along with my parents, and I discovered my first photographs about age six, and ever since then, I have been collecting everything, from furniture, paintings, photos, everything. We used to do the 26th Street Flea Market. I don't know if you're familiar with New York City. The uh, 6th Avenue, 26th Street was a, a crazy flea market in the 60s. It's still around, but it's not as crazy as it was. You can imagine the 60s. And I used to take my little red wagon and go around the streets of Queens, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and pick up things that people threw out. Because in those days, when someone died or moved, everything went on the curb. And uh, my parents would take me over to New York and I would sell. So I got the bug very early on, not only interested in antiques, but the idea that I was able to make money at such a young age doing that was was great. I resonated a lot with uh, the story that you told, even in the book about getting into antiques just from tagging along with your mom. Uh, that was exactly how I got into it as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I think that if you introduce, you know, especially children at the right age, it takes and it resonates very strongly with them. And it's almost like when you start teaching them a second language at a young age, they become so well versed in it that it becomes just second nature to them absolutely which antiques have been for me yeah and that's why it's so important to introduce children to all these different things right now i um i volunteer i'm a uh, docent at the local museum the uh, schoolhouse museum in ridgewood we have some fantastic displays incredible stuff and i love when kids come in and they stand in front of a case and they just are mesmerized oh that's so fun and i look at them and i think wow this is going to stay with this kid. <laughs> and it usually does. It usually does. Oh, yeah. So many fun memories in museums as a kid. And then you wind up with aisles in your house and storage places. <laughs> <laughs> I tease the kids all the time. I tell them, don't worry about me. I can't fall down in my house. There's just little aisles. And <laughs> any way I go, I'm going to fall on something. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really safe. Don't worry. <laughs> the collections will keep me upright. Exactly. I, you know, who needs eight desks? Antique people do. Yes, very much so. But there's a lot of people who completely understand this. And then there are people who walk into my place and look at me and think maybe I need some help. <laughs> They're like, I'm calling someone. <laughs> Intervention. I've seen this TV show. I'm calling. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you either get it or you don't. But to sit here and just look around at, you know, things I've collected over an entire lifetime. And it's just so comforting. And I can actually look at every piece and tell you when I got it, where I got it, who I bought it from. And that's also part of the fun. But I do love photography. I've collected photographs. I think that was the first thing I ever bought were photographs. And I've been buying photographs ever since. Probably 1963. Yeah. Wow. 62, 63. Yeah. That is a really immersive collectible to get started with, too. There's so many different areas you can get into with photographs. Yes. And at that time, of course, in the 60s, they were selling daguerreotypes by the box lot. People were not buying individual pieces. They were literally piling all photographs in a box and selling them at auctions and flea markets. I used to go to the auction in Pine Bush, New York, every weekend with my parents. And I would save my money from the stuff I sold off the street and buy more. I look back and I think of all the wonderful things I picked up in my wagon and sold and think, ah, oh, how did I do that? I wish I had them. <laughs> 
But I, I will tell you one funny story that I recently shared with my, my siblings. When we lived in New York, I used to go around the streets, as I said, with my little red wagon. And we'd, I'd pick up a lot of stuff and bring it home and uh, we'd sell it. But one day in particular, I was down on the main street and on a side street on the curb, I saw four beautiful scales, you know, like you see in the vegetable market. And I thought, why would anybody throw these out? So I picked them up in my wagon and I went up the main street and I sold one to the uh, fish market. I sold another one to the butcher and I sold two to a grocery store. And the next day I was in the pharmacy with my mom and the pharmacist said, this neighborhood's getting so bad. Yesterday, the associated market washed their scales and put them out in the sun to dry. <laughs> and they're gone. Oh, no. And my mother said, oh, no. well, I hope they find whoever took them and they lock him up. And I thought, oh, oh no, I am not opening my mouth. Oh, God. <laughs> so. I had that money hidden for so long because I just, you know, it was a lot of money. I, oh, yeah. I think I made $5 a scale. And I'm sure, I'm sure they were worth much more. And, you know, the story had to go around the neighborhood. And I'm sure everyone who bought one from me knew exactly what they did. <laughs> goodness i love that story but of course i didn't confess for many many years i was gonna say now you gotta wait till the statute of limitations is up exactly <laughs> safe to say it now the scales of justice have been thwarted for five dollars a piece yeah it's what you know that was a lot of money for me at that time oh yeah but yeah i i really enjoyed that and i'm so i don't even know what became of my wagon but i do have another one that i picked up and i keep it outside my door here but now i have a car <laughs> So many scales. I know that feeling too. I picked my car very specifically to balance my needs for driving with things I could stuff in the back of it. Did you know you can fit a whole Governor Winthrop desk in the back of a Honda Fit? <laughs> you know, there's always the roof. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, that too. <laughs> You'll always find blankets and rope in my car. Yep. Oh, that's a good idea. I got to put rope back in my car. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you might have to tie the doors closed. <laughs> So, Anthony, what inspired you to write and curate Love Immortal in particular? Well, you know, I began to catalog my collection because, you know, I had never done that. And I suppose about 2012, I started cataloging and I realized I had these cool categories. I had brides from 1850 yeah, up until 1940. And, you know, I self-published a book, Yesterday's Bride, and then I did three Yesterday's Children. And I, as I was doing those, I was cataloging the dogs and the people, which really, I think, was my favorite because I, you know, was surprised at the fact that during a time when photography was so costly that people would actually take their dog to a photo studio and pay for a photo. You know, my impression, I guess, of dogs in the 19th century was that they were mistreated or they were just incidental. You know, the photographs completely destroyed that image. And so I just started putting that together and doing research. And I said, you know, I have to do this because these photos are super and it really does make a connection when you look at them between the dog and, and their person. There are some really charming ones in there. Oh, yeah. It's an absolutely spectacular collection. Oh, yeah. You know, and it was tough. The toughest thing was I had about 550 photos and I kind of felt like I betrayed my photos when I excluded them. <laughs> but, you know, there are so many of the same type that you can't have, you know, 20 pictures of a kid with a dog laying down by his feet. So I had to you know, exclude them whether they were beautiful or not. But that was the toughest part, I would say. So what I'm hearing is that you have enough material for a second book. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> hey, have you been talking to my agent? <laughs> we can. <laughs> 
I am definitely going to tell it to turn this on when she has an opportunity. <laughs> so do either of you collect photographs? I do, actually. Oh, that's wonderful. I just collect photographs that... Appeal to you. Yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it. Exactly, exactly. Because people ask me that question all the time. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it you just look at one and you can't put your finger on why. You're just like, eh, this one. I want this one. I gotta have this one. Exactly. I did start collecting postmortems. Well, you know, that's interesting because I uh, I did a couple of webinars on uh, photography for the Historic Society. And I said it was very important to include that, you know, postmortems in any discussion of photography because it's such an important part of the Victorian era. And they were squeamish about it and they didn't want any postmortems or even discussion of postmortem uh, photography in there. But the fact is that it was a very normal part of Victorian society. And I have some postmortems and they're very touching because you think about the fact that, A, these people probably could not have afforded to have a photo of that child while the child was alive. And this was their last opportunity. And they scraped together the money and took this photo. And then I, I hold it and I look at it and I think how many nights these parents sat and held the same picture and looked at this image of these children. They're the most moving, the children. You know, they certainly are adults. But when you think that infant mortality before the age of five was 50% or so, and that by 16, almost 75%, you understand why a lot of these photographs were taken and exist. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, children dying of simple things. Measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, typhoid, tonsillitis, appendicitis. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, yeah, it's a very important part of photography and our photographic history. So I think it should be included in any conversation on vintage photographs. Very much so. I agree. I think that's a really good outlook. Yeah. But, you know, in many, many parts of the world, they still do that. And in fact, I lived in uh, the Commonwealth of Dominica for a while and I did deliver babies there. And when it was, we had, you know, a stillbirth, it was very common. They would dress it up and the mother would hold it and pose with it. And that was the thing they did. And if you would go in many of their homes, they had postmortem pictures displayed. Like we would display pictures on our grand piano. Wow. That is a habit that's coming to the U.S. too, where you do see that more and more and more often yeah. as a method of coping with a loss. Yes. Because in the United States here, we are very removed from death. In most other countries, death happens. Dying happens in your home. Death happens in your home. And it's part of their normal you know, life. Everything here is so... <laughs> Yes, you know, we have someone, they go to a hospital and die, then they're taken away to her. And by the time you see them, they're all cleaned up. But it's very personal in most other countries. I would argue that gives them a healthier relationship to death in general. I think so. And I think um, when the whole family is there, it is much better. It's much easier for them. And not that death is easy for them, but I mean, it, it's as if they're all really sharing in this, you know, terrible situation. Yeah. But because most of the postmortems I've seen are either daguerreotypes or CDVs, uh, the carte de visites. I think that's the most I've ever seen. And I haven't seen too many tintypes, some cabinet cards, but I haven't seen too many past the 1920s. Yeah. So that's an interesting area to collect. I collect them incidentally. There's something very stately and touching about them. They're very tender images. Yes, especially the children. And you also see a lot of young women because the maternal mortality was incredibly high. Yes. Women actually risked their lives to have a child. And they still do. But at that time, it was just, it was really a crapshoot. You either lived or died. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love photography. I, I especially love candid shots. 
which you don't really start to see until late 1880s when Kodak came out with the camera. You know, you press the button, we do the rest. <laughs> and then, you know, people started taking photographs willy-nilly of each other, and they did silly things. They stood on their head, they played musical instruments, they did outdoor photos. Those, I think, are my favorite because you actually see people in their everyday existence, how they, they lived, what they did. You can, you know, see their personalities in it. Whereas before that, people had to go to a studio and they had to pose and they wore their best clothes most of the time. I will say one of my favorite images in the book is definitely the, I believe it's a candid of the two people dressed up as clowns with the dog. Isn't that, that <laughs> <laughs> love that one. And I look at that and I think, I wish I had more information on that photo. <laughs> that one and the other one with the nur two nurses and someone in a, like a witch's costume. Yes. You know? <laughs> Yes. Did she take this dog to the hospital to cheer people up? Because her outfit was a little strange for someone who wants to cheer you up. And, you know, the backstory is missing. You're right. The two in the clown outfits, the two nurses with the witch or whatever she's dressed like is, is from Canada. And I'm thinking, was it Halloween? You know, was it just craziness? I prefer to think it was just craziness. Because... <laughs> They are probably people I would have liked to hang around with. They seem fun. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just a touch of eccentricity. Yeah. So they're kind of like the lifestyle photos, you know, where we actually see their lifestyle with, you know, the kind of kooky things they did rather than traditional or posed, you know, kinds of images. But, you know, prior to the 1880s, we had they had no choice. You had to pose. You had to go to a photo studio. People didn't have cameras. It was very fascinating to learn through the book about not just the props that were in the photo studios, but the fake dogs that they would sculpt and have for <laughs> yes. you to hold. I had never heard of that before. Yeah, that was really something. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I had several more photos of the fake dogs, but, you know, you can only include so many, as I said. So I narrowed it down to that very large dog, which obviously is, is fake. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a smaller one that <laughs> a smaller one that looked petrified. And then there was that pug that looked absolutely real. But there was a company in Austria, Goldscheider, that made these incredible statues of women and dogs. And usually they're the ones who made these. And they were so lifelike with glass eyes and actually right down to the claws. But yeah, there are two that are obviously artificial, but there's one that it's very difficult to tell. Yeah, that's that was very funny that they offered that rather than bring your own dog or <laughs> I guess maybe if you bought your dog and he was misbehaving, they substituted. <laughs> I think they swap it out. What I'd like to find is a picture of a real dog with a fake person. Now, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. Maybe one of those creepy 1940s mannequins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, with the molded hair and they're all chipped. Yeah, that would be cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, and their big mouth, big smiles. Like, ugh. Yeah, my roommate's got a couple of those in the apartment. Do you lock your door? <laughs> you might want to start. I've learned to live with them. You know, I grew up with one. We had one in our home as far back as I can remember. It's in my sister's home in Connecticut now. And her name was Matilda. And very early on, my mother did textiles and, and vintage clothing. You know, in the, during the 1960s in New York, the vintage clothing, you know, was just would fly off the racks. But Matilda would be dressed in different outfits depending on the season and, you know, if there was a holiday. And people would come in and actually jump back because they would be confronted with this woman standing by the Christmas tree or at the top of the stairs. Uh, so she's she's now in my sister's home and she's uh, she's dressed in a 1930s slipper satin vamp outfit. Oh, nice. Yeah. But yeah, I grew up with a mannequin. Matilda's living it up. Matilda. Yeah. She's a member of the family. That's free house security, too. She, 
that's true. That's true. And you know, I, I hope my relatives all don't hear this, but she's not the biggest dummy in our family. <laughs> I think we can all relate. Oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the artificial dogs are really sweet. And uh, again, as I said, it was it was a tough decision as to which to include. It is another testament to how people felt about their dogs during the Victorian era. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was just working on a, a piece where I was comparing the looks of dogs from that time to now. And Yes, we were noticing that in the book, that the pugs look like they could breathe. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the pugs now weigh less and their bodies are not as long. And they bred them so their snout is shorter. Same with all the bulldogs. Their snout was actually a little longer during the mid-1850s, and the Victorians bred them to be shorter, have shorter snouts. Their legs are a little shorter as well. So, yeah, there's a couple of pictures where you see a long, lean pug, and you know it's a pug, but you're like, wow, this dog is long and got longer legs. But they were bred specifically to become shorter and, you know, lap dogs. I, remember I did a double take at a Pekingese. You know, I scanned it. I saw that it said, like, posing with her Pekingese, and I'm going, that is what, that's what they used to look like. Oh, my God. Yeah. And poodles, <laughs> poodles look very different. Their fur was very tight and curly. And as you see, there are several poodle photographs as you see them progress through the eras. Their fur becomes a little more loose and fluffy. And then we have the poodles that we know today. But yeah, that's another breed that changed quite a bit. Dee, what's the name of that program that's trying to breed breathability back into pugs? Retro Mops. Yes, thank you. Retro Mops. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a, they're focusing on breeding pugs using photographs, actually, which I thought was interesting, as well as old uh, dog confirmation books to breed pugs back into having longer legs and snouts that don't have so much brachycephalic issues. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. It's much better for the dog. You know, Queen Victoria loved pugs and uh, she had, I think, 30 something. Oh, wow. And, yeah. That's a pack right there. Yeah. She had the <laughs> really crazy names for some of them, but she actually took care of them herself. She loved the pugs and uh, she bred them. It was very involved in the breeding. But certainly by the end of the century, they wanted these little, little dogs. And you'll see a couple of photographs in the book where they have these little, little dogs in these monumental hats that, you know, <laughs> you know, a good wind could lift them off the ground. In fact, there's one photo with a woman with this monumental hat and she has a little, little dog and he's sitting on top of what looks like a drum because it's so big, but it's actually her hat box. So it gives you an idea that by the end of the, the uh, you know 19th century, they wanted these humongous hats and tiny, tiny dogs. I need a dog I can hide in my hat. How do I make this work? I mean, that's the goal, right? I want to be out at the market. I want my hat to be knocking other people's hats off and I want my dog to be tucked nice in my arm. And with those big hats, go big hat pins. Yes. Oh, so yeah. You will get a seat on the subway <laughs> you say something about my dog you get stabbed <laughs> oh no but yeah you know initially i was going to do um i was going to lay the book out in such a way that it would reflect each decade as you as you progress through the book oh, that's kind of boring so i just shook it up and i i really thought it was much better to say for instance you'll see a flapper and next to her is a grandma with her dog but uh, you know that's the way i wanted to present it instead of just like a historical. Yeah, it makes for nice, easy points of comparison between the decades. It's a fascinating way to look back and forth through history. Yes, exactly. And that's another great shot. If you, if you recall, there's a, there's a flapper. She's got a, a great cloche hat on and she's got her Dalmatian with her. But yeah, I do have some favorites in that book. 
it's unfortunate because the photos I have in the collection come from more than 35 countries. But as I selected the different photos, I, it, it narrowed down to about 24, I think, 24 countries, which is still a good representation. Yeah, I was impressed, actually. I feel like I don't see a lot of even in photo books, much less in out in the shops, that I don't see a lot of photos of other countries. So it was actually really interesting to see these other cultures and timelines in those cultures. It's very cool. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, it's very great when you can pick up a photograph and there's writing on the back and you can figure out what language it is and then you can determine the origin. That was the case with many of these. That's how I identified the country of origin on, on so many of them. I do want to make sure we discuss one photo in particular, which is the Papillon mixed breed from Michigan 1915. Early 20th century couple, a man and a woman, staying together with their little dog on a table. And it looks like the dog maybe moved a bit more than the photographer wanted yes, during yes. the photographic process because... The face is blurry. The photographer tried to draw the eyes back in. It's <laughs> a <laughs> very early Photoshop. <laughs> the poor dog. Yeah, the poor dog. <laughs> The poor dog, definitely. The dog moved and there was, of course, a blur. And then I think what the photographer did was, as you said, photoshopped it not very well. No. <laughs> they, they did their best. There's just something very delightfully human about that. Just seeing that, you know, a thing had happened that you kind of expect it with a little wiggly dog and yeah. then just doing your level best to make that a presentable image. Yes. And, and that's another interesting thing that you bring up. Very often you will find photographs where the dog's head or tail is very blurry and it's because the dog moved and they are dogs and we can't expect them to just stay still like we can't expect a child to stay still. Oh, you see the same thing with babies, infants. It's interesting with antique photos, very often you'll see what I call the three-handed baby. You'll see a baby and it's sitting there, an infant, you know, maybe less than a year old, and it's sitting among all these uh, drapes. And if you look close enough, you'll see coming through the material, a hand holding the baby from behind. And <laughs> So what the kid is doing is actually they've covered this poor woman up with all these drapes set the baby on her lap, and then her hand comes through like a seatbelt. So there are people who only collect that type of photo, if you can believe it or not. Those are the hidden mothers, right? Yeah, hidden mothers. I call it a three-handed baby. I don't know what other people call it. But... <laughs> three-handed baby, I actually like a lot more. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I actually knew a, a guy for many years. He was obsessed with photographs of women with banana curls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hey. Sure. You know. It's a fetching hairstyle. Exactly. And then I thought about that and I said to myself, that's a little off, you know, not usual. But then people looked at me the same way when they like I had an uncle who said, you collect pictures of dead people. <laughs> well, they weren't dead when the picture was taken. And he goes, but they're dead now and you don't even know them. And then he said, do you trade them like baseball cards? <laughs> so I said to myself. I am as weird to them as that fellow who collected banana curls is to me. So I really shouldn't think of him in that way. That's the, you can't, you can't go judging people. Cause then you're like, Oh wait, ah, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I have that same hump on my back. Listen, all photos will eventually become photos of dead people. Thank you. Yeah. See, it's just a matter of perspective. <laughs> I wish you had behind were behind me whispering that at the time. Cause I could have said, <laughs> Because every photo I have of him now is of a dead person. How that, isn't that funny how that works? Shows him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Oh, Jesus, Pete. Oh, boy. 
But I'm glad you picked out particular photos because it makes me feel good that you really enjoyed looking through the book. There's another photo. I, I don't know if you call it was a really fat pug. Yes. Yeah. That big chunky boy. It was. Yeah. It's like, you know, love is not food, but apparently, you know, he, he got too many treats. That was one where I did. I laughed out loud at the caption because I wasn't expecting it. Oh, yeah. yeah I, but at the end, it was just like, well, obviously this owner thinks so. <laughs> Yeah, it's <laughs> a fat baby. Oh boy. <laughs> That's another nice thing I enjoyed about the book because it kind of looks, you know, when you look, it looks very serious. But really, if you read a lot of the captions, they're they're kind of funny. They're a delight. But I loved doing this book. I really did. And you know, it's interesting. After the final version was sent, I kind of got sad. I kind of got a little depressed because I had worked on it and it just meant so much to me. And then it was it was over. And I just said, you know what? I can look forward to it seeing it in a bookstore. That'll be my next thrill. Yeah, exactly. Got a, a little bit of empty nest syndrome for writers. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like on my project. Oh. <laughs> that's when you start filling the void with book two. Yeah. Well, I'm working on several other things right now, which keeps me busy. But, you know, I have one copy of the book so far. and sent me my author's copy. <laughs> I had a little Victorian doll's bed that I had given to my sister used for her, her puppy. <laughs> And of course, the dog outgrew it, so she gave it back to me. And when I got this book, I laid it in the little bed and I put a little cover over it <laughs> and I took a picture of it. <laughs> okay, absolutely. That's very good. <laughs> very good. I have this photo and I sent it to the editors. You know, I, here's, here's my little dog book in its little doggy bed. <laughs> I think that needs to be a new trend for authors. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Tuck in your author's copy. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you know, every dog deserves a wonderful bed. And since it's a, a vintage photograph book, I had to put it in a Victorian doll's bed. <laughs> Very much so. I, love that. I am curious. For some of the photos, were lucky enough that you had some backstory on them. Getting that, was that serendipity or did you really have to go digging to like get the stories? I actually know there, there's one story about Toby, the, the dog in Ireland, and the woman who was a child at the time. I know her. I see her a few times a week. She's my best friend's mom. And uh, when I was speaking about uh, showing her photos of the dog, she pulled, she said, hold on, I have a great old photo of my parents and my aunt and uncle with our dog Toby. And it was from the 30s and she pulled it out and I asked her what the story was and she told me this incredible story about Toby being dognapped. And then the other stories, I actually know th those people. I I'm sure I could have found many more stories, but I think that was enough for the book. But yeah, I did I did know these stories uh, in advance, uh, the other two stories. Yeah, they're remarkable stories. Yeah, the, the one that's fascinating is I actually have a copy of the letter from the early 19th century. It's a woman I work with at the museum whose family's been here since the 1700s. And she has incredible stuff from her family that's been passed down for generations. And they saved all their correspondence. And in this correspondence was the dog uh, Wolf Hunter, yes. who actually swam across the Hudson. Yeah. Such a good boy. Looking for his owner. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, wow. And, you know, that, that was an, another incredible uh, find there. Again, it came from speaking about dogs and photos. And this woman said, I have this great letter. So that's how that got in the book. <laughs> that's a, that's really amazing. Yeah. The, the dog had to be such a big and strong swimmer. I mean, the Hudson's no easy task. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even the Toby story just feels so much like it feels cinematic. Like that could be like a kid's movie. Yes, you're right. And, you know, the thing is the emotion when you read it. 
seeing Susan tell the story, you know, you just can't put that into words. You know, 60-something years later, how, oh, what am I talking about? 80 years later, her, her face just lit up when she spoke about how Toby came into the house and, and you, know, you know, returned and just greeted everyone. And I, and I just looked at her and I thought, after all these years, Toby still affects her this much. Toby was such a good boy. It's really sweet. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I do buy and collect, unfortunately, everything. I love furniture. I love 18th century furniture. <laughs> it's a difficult thing to love, but <laughs> but it's worth it. <laughs> I'm just impressed by the workmanship. The fact that they were able to do all this by hand, it just amazes me. It's truly incredible. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love working in the museum. Right now, I'm doing a fundraising for the museum, and I'm going to have a uh, sale in September for them. And we put out the word locally and asked people to bring in donations starting yesterday. And uh, I was there. Uh, you know, I'm there to collect. These people bought an incredible stuff. It's the kind of stuff where you're like, damn, <laughs> I wish I came to your yard sale. I mean, they bringing in bisque dolls and, and beautiful game plates and incredible glassware. And it's just like, you know, uh, rocking horses. The nice thing about that is that, you know, these things have been saved and they're going to be cherished by the next person who buys them. But the fact that people are willing to give this stuff up to raise money for a museum is is incredible because we need to preserve this stuff and we need to continue to pass it along and interest younger people in it. Absolutely. It does feel like a win-win because I know that for a lot of people who are giving up items like that, one of their concerns is that they're going to go to, you know, a good home, so to speak. And I would feel pretty confident with a museum fundraiser knowing that someone who is interested and passionate would pick up my stuff. Yes. And a nice surprise for some of them, some of the donors was that several of the items we asked if we could actually keep for the permanent collection and they were thrilled. Oh, yeah, fantastic. What a fun little surprise. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We have a great collection and we're open every weekend, which is another great thing because we really make an effort to keep the doors open for people to come in. And we have a lot of school age. We have a lot of school groups. Uh, we have a lot of senior groups. You know, it runs the gamut from, you know, very young to very old. And as again, I love seeing them come in and find something that fascinates them. And the fact that they will ask questions shows me that they're really interested. Although I had a fellow the other day, he, he went through every single exhibit, every case. He read everything. <laughs> and as he was leaving, I asked him, uh, so what did you think of the exhibit? I mean, we have Revolutionary War stuff, Civil War stuff incredible. We have uh, samplers that there are only six in existence of George Washington. We have George Washington's signed letter. We have something from Abraham Lincoln on exhibit. And I said, he was leaving. And I said, what did you think of our exhibit? And he says, well, you know, the American flag you have over there. I said, yes. He said, you left the word of out of the description. <laughs> That's free copy editing. Oh, everyone's a critic. <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, that's all you got out of this. Wow. Back to the drawing board. <laughs> that was your big takeaway. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Can't please them all. I, well, never, ever, ever. And yeah, I'm expecting there'll be quite a few people who will criticize, you know, my work, but. Again, the only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing. And even then you'll get criticized for doing nothing. So yep. just forge ahead. <laughs> just got to go towards what you love. So I wanted to come home and quickly look through the book and make sure all my ofs were in place. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch any, so I think you might be good. Yeah, no, didn't catch any typos on our end. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> so what museum is this? I'd love to visit. Oh, it's in Ridgewood, New Jersey. It's the uh, Schoolhouse Museum. Oh, I've heard of that. 
Yeah, if you come by right now for the month of August, I'm there every Thursday, four to six, and every Sunday, one to three, I'm there to receive donations. But if anybody's interested in coming, just ask for Anthony, and I will be very happy to go from case to case with you and talk until you want to stick something in my mouth. <laughs> my sisters, they say, don't get him started. They say, if you ask him the time, he'll give you the history of the clock. I think you and D have something in common. That is the top tier <laughs> museum experience. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's true. Now, Anthony, what advice do you have for people just getting started in collecting antique photography? Read. All right. <laughs> there <Read>. you go. <laughs> Honestly, I have learned so much from these in- incredibly intelligent people, but there's a book uh, by O. Henry Mace, uh, Collector's Guide to Early Photography. There's a super book, uh, American Victorian Costume and Early Photographs. It's by Priscilla Harris Dalrymple. And if you wanted date photographs from the 19th century, this is your book. She discusses the nuances of clothing that will help you sometimes date a photograph to the year. She will tell you on certain outfits during the 1870s during a one-year period where you'll see a pocket on a dress where you wouldn't see it anywhere else. She'll talk about the notches in a man's lapel, the shape of it, and how you can date it to within five years. It's an incredible book. It's, uh, again, the American Victorian costume and early photographs. Oh, that sounds magnificent. It is. And it's, you know, it's, it's like 108 pages or something. And it's a Dover book, which is great. Dover books have a lot of information. In fact, my dad used to print all the Dover books. But it's interesting because uh, right now we have two women who are cat- they're professionals and they came in to catalog our textiles and clothing in the museum. And when they went upstairs to see what they were up to, they had, uh, I was really proud, they had my four self-published books and they had this book, American Victorian Costume, which they were using to help date clothing, but it certainly is incredibly good at dating your photographs. I think uh, O. Henry Mace's book, if you want to date photographs, is really, really super. And then the other thing about photography is I collect thermoplastic cases, which people call gutta percha, which is absolutely erroneous because there were no gutta percha cases. These cases are thermoplastic. Have you seen them? The hard plastic cases from the 1850s, early 1860s? Yes. And there's literally, there must be a thousand different ones. And they're fascinating because the scenes are incredible and so intricate. But there's a book. It's the Bible on thermoplastic cases on all photo cases actually leather cases press paper cases it's 19th century photography cases uh, photographic cases by paul k berg b-e-r-g i have seen this book in museums i believe it's still available but if you collect photographs cased photographs you absolutely need this book because you can use it to date your cases to identify your cases and not only that in the book you learn how many are made very scarce very rare or common it's a super book. It's a super book. And the other book, I'm sorry, I, you got me started. I'm giving you the history of the clock. <laughs> no, this is this is awesome. I'm writing this all down. That's why we invited you on. <laughs> yeah. The other book is Dressed for the Photographer. Dressed for the Photographer. Ordinary Americans in Fashion from 1840 to 1900. It's by Joan Severa, S-E-V-E-R-A. Super book. It's a big book. It's a hardcover. It is gorgeous. And you will be able to date your photographs from these books. No doubt about it, because I think that's the biggest challenge for people. They can say, I have a CDV and I know they made CDVs from this date to that date. But, you know, CDVs, they went from the late 1850s right up till 1900. 
So these books will tell you actually how to date a carte de visite based on several features, the paper stock, the color of the stock. And once you start doing this, you're going to find you're pulling your photographs out and saying, ah, this one's from the 1870s. I know it because. Um, so, yeah, you can use costume and you can use actually the composition of the photograph to date it. You know, the thickness of the stock, the color of the stock. If there is a photographer name on the front, which they did not do till later, as you know, that the early photographs, the paper photographs have the photographer's names on the back. So yeah, these books I would definitely recommend to anyone who wants to collect photographs. And the other thing I would recommend, you'll find hidden treasures. If you go to antique shops and flea markets, don't skip the postcard boxes because so many people take real photo postcards and stick them in with the postcards. Very, yep, very good advice. And those are the ones that I love too, because many of them are taken by amateur photographers and they're just super. And I love real photo postcards. They are photographs, but they were printed on postcard paper. That's, the, you know, they're not mass produced postcards. At most, maybe they had two or five made. It's interesting. There's one photo in, in the book of a real photo postcard of a woman. She's in a sailor midi and she's got a, a pit bull uh, standing up on its hind legs and she's looking in his eyes. And I had wanted to buy that photo and I missed an opportunity to buy it. And that same person found another copy in their, I guess, ancestors' uh, belongings. And I was able to get that. Oh, that's wonderful. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love those acquisition stories. They're so fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I write for the Antique Trader magazine. Yes, I believe we've seen your work in our episode on chamber pots and also several others. Oh, that was a cool article, the chamber pots. Yeah. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> the way to go. But... Uh, <laughs> I just did one on uh, real photo postcards, and the one I did before that was on the uh, sun tax, the photographs from 1864 to 1866 that were taxed by the government to help pay for, you know, defray war costs of the Civil War. Uh, and during that time, you know, you had to pay a tax on photographs, and the photographer was supposed to put a stamp on the back of the photo. So I did an article on that as well. So anyone who's collecting, this is all free information. Go online. You can put my name. You can Google whatever search engine you use. Put my name, put Antique Trader articles, or even put photograph articles, and they'll come right up. Um, but if you want to just read about a lot of stuff, just put my name and, and you know, uh, Antique Trader, Anthony Cavo articles, and you'll get a slew of articles. In every single article, I really try to present something very new about whatever I'm writing about. I'd say you do pretty successfully. I will say I have learned a lot from your articles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, actually, when we when we got the book, the name clicked for me. I'm like, oh, that's the, tr that's the trader guy, the antiques trader guy. <laughs> do you know, <laughs> when I first started writing, you know, it's bittersweet. My mom was very ill in 2013 and uh, she was dying and we had her at home for six weeks. That's when I got the uh, position at the Antique Trader and I told her and her face, because she had been, she had subscribed to the Antique Trader for many, many years and her face lit up. She just was so thrilled. Aww. And she's looked at me, she said, you're on your way. And then I think it was the week that my first issue came out that she died. But it all works. You know, I thought, wow, that's, you know, she she got to see that and hear that. So she was very, very happy. That's lovely. So I've been writing for them since 2013. And I really love it. I, I love the magazine. And they really have a lot of information for, you know, and it's, and it's twice a month, the issue. And they're going to have a big uh, spread on uh, Love Immortal. So 
suppose toward the end of August. Oh, awesome. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Washington Post actually is going to put me on their blog. They picked, I think, 14 spreads. So you can see some more of the book on the Washington Post photo blog. Oh, awesome. But this is like my christening here. <laughs> first podcast yes they, yes absolutely <laughs> i'm honored thank you <laughs> i had a few interviews but they were you know questions that were just sent to me that i had to respond to but this is the first podcast i would love to talk more about antiques anytime you want to <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely i mean you've got such a breadth of knowledge i'm gonna start dragging you on yeah just if you see an article you like just pull it up and you know hit me up i'll i'll be happy to blab because that's my passion it really is my passion nice we might hit you up about Meerschaum pipes. Not going to lie. Oh, wow. Let me tell you something. <laughs> yeah, one of our docents at the museum bought in a Meerschaum pipe she donated for the sale. It is the most incredible Meerschaum pipe I've ever seen. It's very, very large. And it's a dragon claw holding the bowl. Oh, why? And it is so detailed and so large. It's one of the largest I've ever seen. And she simply said, I know it's worth money, but, you know, I wanted to go to the museum, you know, for raise money. And I personally think we should keep it in the collection, but she wants to raise money for it. But, yeah, we just got a beautiful Meerschaum pipe. Wow. Unfortunately, I only have a few. And again, I picked them up incidentally. But do you, you like Meerschaum pipes? I am very fascinated by them. I actually didn't know an awful lot about them other than I could identify the material and rough prices. But um, a friend of ours who got me into it, he was explaining the export, the unique like nature of the material. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I think I did an article on it. I'm not sure. You did. <laughs> I did. You definitely did. Yes. Because that is why I know about Meerschaum pipes now. <laughs> I do these articles and then I just move on. And I forget about them. There have been times when we've accidentally recorded the same episode <laughs> twice because we've forgotten we've done it. <laughs> One of the other fun things about the Antique Trader was people would send in photographs of things they had and, and ask what they were. And this woman found, um, <laughs> she found this little box in her father's possessions after he died. And they were small uh, metal tubes with a, a, you know, a blunt pointed end. Oh, no. And they were graduated different sizes. Oh, and no. <laughs> they turned out to be <laughs> medical devices for um, uh -huh. stretching. <laughs> A particular part of the body. So I'm, I'm not sure she was too thrilled with the answer. <laughs> so I only used her initials. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. I had a lot of fun answering that. If you if you can find that one, that, that is a lot of fun. I've got to find that one. I collect medical antiques and people coming to me and saying, what was this for? Is always a very, it is a roulette of polite company. Um, <laughs> do you know what a speculum is? Like... <laughs> All too well, yes. <laughs> I've never had a personal encounter with one, but I have used them. <laughs> yeah, I remember I had something in a collection after an antique show, and someone was like, oh, that's a fancy, that's a funny little hair comb. It's a duck. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it was, they, were, they were looking at it, they're like, oh, is that for your hair? And I'm like, oh, no, this is to break your ribs apart to get to your heart. This is, this is a Victorian rib spreader. Oh, boy. And I think sometimes I get very excited, and I think that puts people off, so... <laughs> Well, that's another fascinating uh, field of collecting medical. Again, I, I've only collected that incidentally. I've never gone after it, but I'm fascinated every time I find something. It's really something. The other really priceless piece of information I have, or advice I should say, is anytime you encounter something, whether you buy it or not, if it fascinates you, go home and read about it. 
And certainly if you buy it, then go home and read about it and, you know, copy and paste and make a little folder for it. And that way you just learn so much. You learn incredible amounts of things from people who share their information. Definitely read about every single thing. You know, it makes me crazy when I when I'll go online on eBay or something and these people just throw these incredible descriptions. There were two CDVs from 1865 with stamps on the back. Of course, it's nothing new to photo collectors. But this person listed them as the earliest known postcards ever because it had a stamp. It had a stamp and it had the photographer's address, of course, because that's what's on the back of a photograph. So they listed them as the earliest known postcards. That, wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, read, read. Please read. Please get it right. Not only so you know, but so you don't, you know, make a fool of yourself. <laughs> Maybe listen to our postcards episode before you go selling postcards online. Yeah. <laughs> Just note that if you get it wrong, someone will be burying their face in their palms and screaming <laughs> at how wrong you got it. So don't be that guy. Read a book. <laughs> I'll tell you. You know, that brings to mind a patient I had who was giving a family history and said that her father died of cancer of the semicolon. Hmm. And I thought, hmm. hmm. And then, of course, I had to you know, tell my colleague. And I said, I think he went into a comma and he died, period. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But I thought, Demi colon. I wonder if she meant the small intestine. But yeah, so please read. <laughs> <laughs> please. We're begging you. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Anthony. This has been a blast. Oh, I, I totally enjoyed this. I do have to say about the book Love Immortal coming out soon, August 30th, I believe. Yes, that's right. It is one of the most beautifully designed books it's ever been my pleasure to handle. As an antique book collector, I have frequently mourned the era where we put love and care into the presentation of books, particularly hardcover books. And I have no doubt that this is one people will be picking up, you know, 50 years from now, just based on how gorgeous it is. It truly is a beautiful looking book. And, and uh, you know, it's a hardcover. It doesn't have a dust jacket, which to me is a plus. But yeah, the art director, he did a, a fascinating, fascinating. His name is Raphael Gironi. His eye is, is, is super. He really uh, melded, you know, his artwork with the photographs. And your writing is captivating. And there's so much more fun information than you'd think in that book. Because I think you walk in, you expect to talk about dogs. Yes. You learn a little bit about a lot of different things. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot of different things. And it's not dry at all. I think it's quite humorous. And I think there's a lot of fun facts in there. It is a hoot and a half, let me tell you. Oh, good. Great. Wow, this has been such fun. I, I was a little anxious before I did this. And <laughs> of course, my sister said, don't worry. Once you start talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's good advice. <laughs> you can count on sisters for that. <laughs> If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly at antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!